Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is episode 70 with Stephen Hurchin, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Technology Officer of Impossible Film, the Impossible Project. Follow them out at impossible underscore HQ online. Uh, more about who my guest is in a moment. Uh, this is a really good one, this one. How are you? Thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of the show already. If this is your first one, I'm stoked you can be a part of this. This is a really important show for me to do. I really enjoy doing it. I really relish in the opportunity to be authentic with you each and every week. And yeah, so thank you so much for those of you who've been in touch and let me know that that resonates because look, I really like it. Um, I really like that I have the opportunity to be authentic and that it resonates with you. That's all I can say. If you want to know more about the show, you can subscribe to the email list, which is osherginsberg.com. I won't ever spam you. I'll just let you know about who's coming up on the show. Um, also, if you go to iTunes and hit subscribe uh, on the podcast app in your iPhone, uh, there will be a new episode in your phone if you're in America every Sunday, if you're in the US, if you're in Australia every Monday. Um, and if you're using Android, I thoroughly recommend Pocket Casts, which is a fantastic app made by some cats in Adelaide. Uh, it's, for me, the best podcast app there is. And um, you can also subscribe there. So, uh, yeah, great to have you. If you're new, please explore the back catalog. There's a lot of great stuff there. If I do say so myself, I'm really grateful that um, I've been able to do this each and every week since I started it. It's ace. To check in with you, I just got back to Los Angeles. I've been in Amsterdam which is a beautiful, beautiful place and an amazing part of the world. And I've been working there at a place called Think, the uh, Amsterdam School of Creative Leadership. 
and uh, I love working there. I, I started there as a student and I've been going to school there since uh, about a year ago, but they hired me to come and work there and it's enormously sensational work and it's it's really, really lovely to do. And um, I've been uh, moderating and curating forums there with uh, industry leaders and uh, forward thinkers and some of those people I've also managed to get on uh, and asked if they have a, can have a very similar conversation with me on a podcast, which has happened. So while I was in Amsterdam, I did a bunch of podcasts, including the one you're going to hear today. So I've got to say, I feel so grateful to be working with the team. I think they're a remarkable crew of humans and they're putting together something very special. And um, I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky to have that um, I'm really grateful to have that because it's so in alignment with um, my passion and purpose, which is something that they uh, are at pains to to teach us there at, at Think as to how can you create something that is in alignment with your passion and purpose because if you're working on something that's in alignment with your passion and purpose, you'll never work a day in your life. And I consider myself very lucky that the work that I do and have done most of my career has been in alignment with my passion and purpose. I, I'm very, very, very grateful for that. Um, but then I look at other people around me who make sure their hobbies are in alignment with their passion and purpose and they dedicate time to those things because it makes them feel alive. And so if you can find that, if you can find something that's in alignment with your passion and purpose, I, I recommend it highly because it, it, it certainly helps me with dealing with a lot of the things that I've been dealing with, um, over the last year and a bit, um, as I've uh, navigated this interesting world of having a brain that's different and perceives the world in a different way <laughs> and perceives threats just fucking everywhere, um, to have something to work on and to something to uh, to to concentrate on that feels like it's the right thing to do is enormously helpful, enormously, enormously helpful. Uh, so that's, that's really helpful for me. Let me tell you about my guest this week. My guest this week has come to me through, uh, sometimes on this show, I'll, I'll contact people through Twitter. Sometimes on this show, I'll, I'll just meet them in person. Um, I was grateful to be set up with interviewing Stephen Hurchin through about three different people who all worked to make it happen. And I'm very, very grateful for them to make it happen because it really was wild. Stephen Hurchin is the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Technical Officer at The Impossible Project. What is The Impossible Project? Okay, so you're probably listening to this on a phone, which means you can get to carry a camera everywhere you go. And that camera makes a photograph that you can then share instantly. It wasn't always this way. Before having a camera on you at all times, there were point and shoot 35 millimeter cameras that involved taking the uh, film to the chemist or to the the film developers and waiting a week and getting, getting your photos back or sometimes even waiting an hour to get your photos back. And, um, you can only shoot 24 at a time. And it, uh, it was a laborious process, but there was also a kind of photography that was very, very different. Instant photography, instant photography where the actual camera was also the printer and you could take a photo, the camera would roll out a picture. And in a few minutes, that picture would develop in front of your eyes. The colors would fade in from the white. And before your very eyes, there was a picture there and you held it in your hands. And there's this photograph that will never exist anywhere else again. There's no copy of it. It's only one of its kind. And it's a very, very special, special thing. Now, now uh, 
as Stephen discusses in this, we talk about how the Polaroid company uh, started running into trouble and what happened as digital photography and printing of digital photography started to become very, very cheap and enormously high quality. The need for this instant picture just kind of plunged. And um, as Polaroid started to shut factories down around the world, there was a, a couple of folks, the legend has it, that met at the closing party of the Enschede Polaroid film manufacturing plant in the Netherlands, which is where we did this interview. And they said, we can't let this happen. We can't let this film disappear because something like 200 million cameras around the world will become obsolete. So what are we going to do? And so they banded together some money and they bought the very last factory that made instant integral film. And they set about recreating and creating a new instant photography process that would save instant photography. And they built it and worked and trial and error and worked and tried and sold. And they worked to a point where last year they sold 1 million units all around the world. And it's a truly, truly amazing story. The thing I love about instant photography, every portrait that you see me shoot. Uh, so I shoot a portrait every time I, I interview a guest. I shoot that portrait on a Polaroid 110A camera, which has been modified to take Fuji peel apart pack film. But there's something about, for me, holding an instant picture in your hands that is just so special because you know that picture was in, this object was in the room as the same room as the subject and the photographer. So for example, if I handed you a picture that Andy Warhol shot of Grace Jones, you know for a fact that this little thing, this little 10 centimeter by 16 centimeter thing was once held in the hands of Andy Warhol, was once held in the hands of Grace Jones and was in that room on that night at that club, wherever they were. And there's something super special about that and that it's the only one of its kind and it'll never exist again. And you're sure you can make a copy of it, but it won't be the same as holding it in your hand. And there's something so amazing for me about instant photography that that is that. There is a magic about it, which Stephen and I talk about. He was very gracious with his time. He took me on a tour of the factory now. In this world of uh, automation, mechanization, robotization of factory processes, this place was like stepping into a time warp. There were no LEDs anywhere. There was no robot arms. It was all pneumatic cylinders and pulleys and gears and wheels and the cushing and sucking of uh, the sound of the place was just incredible. The the sound of the mechanisms going on about that and and, and the smell of the place and and the there was dinging of, of bells for when machines were finished. There was no beeping. There was no digital beeps. It was all the dinging of an actual bell. There was tungsten lamps that lit and, and, and extinguished to show that machines were working and not working. There was no, uh, you know, kind of a flat screen readout of showing you what screen is, what machine is working. It was all very, very intricate and incredible and, and a, a lot of the process is actually in the dark. So a lot of the machines are in the dark and, and some of the, the workers know how to repair the machines and fix the machines completely in the dark. And Stephen was telling me that actually at the Polaroid factory in um, Massachusetts, that they actually employed uh, blind people uh, to work there. They would come to work with a seeing eye dog and they would go inside these, uh, these dark rooms where the machines had to operate in the darkness because of the light sensitivity of the film and they would work all day. Um, you know, 
just work all day. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. This this story and this podcast is 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 very nerdy. I'm just going to warn you right now. We get really nerdy about. I mean, he's a chief chem. He's a chemist, so we start talking about the chemical processes and the and the art and the science of instant photography. But what's amazing, this he, Stephen's like a kid. He's so excited about this. This is he's. He's older than me. He's probably about, I'm not going to guess, I'm not going to assume, but he's probably about 20, 20 or 30 years older than me. And I'm 40. But he's like a kid. He's so excited about what he does every day. Now, remember we were talking about passion and purpose earlier? He gets up every day and he loves what he does. Even if you're not a photographer, the story of how this company tapped into a community, saved an entire art form from extinction, and even created something new is just remarkable. And Stephen tells a great story of what it was like to live through the decline of one of the biggest, most incredible companies that the world has ever seen. Polaroid had a near monopoly on instant photography for 60 years. He talks about this. Some years they were taking in over $2 billion in sales. So just imagine, they were like the apple of their time. Edwin Land was easily pre-Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs in his charisma and his innovation. Incredible, incredible company. But he was there as this unbelievable company faced the unthinkable of going into bankruptcy. And he talks about how difficult that was, but yet what grew out of that. So he talks about being in this company, the old job for life thing, suddenly this job's not there anymore. He started something new, and then he left that starting something new to follow his passion and purpose into something that everyone else deemed impossible, the impossible project. This is a great story. Even if you're not a photographer, even if you're not into chemistry, this is a great story. So come with me now to Enschede in the Netherlands, which is about two hours by train east of uh, Amsterdam. It's right by the German border. And it's super cool with lino floors and old metal desks. And it looks like an episode of Mad Men. The place is unreal. So this is me and Stephen Hurchin at the Impossible Factory in Enschede in the Netherlands. Enjoy. Tends to do a fair amount of driving, and he's constantly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's what he lives on. Well, we're rolling. Hello, hello. How are you, Steve? I'm good. I'm good. This is, can you tell tell everybody where we are? Yeah. Uh, let's see. We are in Enschede, Netherlands, uh, at the Impossible Film Assembly Plant. Um, this is one of two plants that Polaroid had to assemble its integral film, uh, and. Um, this is the only one that uh, you know that exists today. Uh, without this plant, um, it, it, it would be virtually impossible to make uh, you know integral instant film that would work in Polaroid cameras. So, and this was the this was the last factory in the world that was still making Polaroid film. Yeah, there were two factories in the world that made integral instant film, one in the U.S. and one here, and Polaroid was in the process of shutting them down. Um, as it was uh, winding down its business. What, 2007, uh, 2008? Yeah, it was around that time, yep. And um, this one was next to be, to be wound down uh, when Florian Caps from Austria um, decided to stop that process and purchase the plant. And um, by doing that, he basically kept open the possibility of being able to make instant film again that could be used in Polaroid cameras. Um, having the plant was a necessary but not sufficient thing for that. 
there was a lot more that had to be done to be able to actually make film that would work in Polaroid cameras. But without the plant, it uh, wouldn't have been, you know, wouldn't have been possible. So obviously, you know, having all the machines and everything, you've just taken me for a tour of the factory floor, which is, as you mentioned, it's a little like a cartoon. It was that, that Chuck Jones cartoon that the music went dun, 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 where the, the animals were always running around inside these big factories and there's, there's bells that ring and lights that flash and it, it's got a kind of like uh, you don't really kind of see that kind of mechanization anymore. No, and, and, when they're run- and they weren't running fully today when you were there, but when they are, there's lots of other mechanical sounds of levers and doors opening and closing and, you know, ka-chunk, 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 the, the whole place. It's almost like there's a heartbeat within the building. You can literally hear it and it's, it's, it's just kind of pulsing while, while film is getting made. And so obviously having the machines is one thing, but it's a complicated setup. So... How, yeah, what did they it do? Is. It is. I, I, I'm, I'm uh, somebody who's been quoted, and I believe that instant film is the world's most chemically complicated, entirely man-made product. Uh, I don't know of another. I've been a chemist for for years and years, and and um, um, there are you know there, there are incredible number of chemicals that are needed to make instant film. There are at least around 50 chemical reactions that take place in the minutes while the film is developing. And it's an incredibly complex interactive system. So, um, so to have a factory that can assemble the main, the main components, the negative, the sheet, the pod, the developing fluid, the, the battery, the cassettes and package it all, that's all you know, one thing. But then to come up with those chemicals um, and and be able to you know coat them in a multi-layer thin film coating process and make the negative and make the sheet that have to go into this process. That that was what that 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 was what most people told the founders of this company was was impossible, and and uh, a part of the company's name came from people saying, "Look, okay, you 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 have a factory." that can assemble the film, but you, you don't have the components to assemble and it's almost impossible to get them. But that's what the team did. So I'm assu- I can only assume that the process behind Polaroid, like, yes, we'll sell you the factory, but we can't give you the recipe. Was that pretty much it? Yeah, well, it wasn't just, just that. There was a lot, I mean, it, it wasn't uh, something that a normal outsider could go and find all of the exact recipe for every layer in the negative and all the chemicals and everything else. But many of the chemicals were custom chemicals. Polaroid developed them. That's what I actually did at Polaroid was, was the molecular design and synthesis of new materials for instant film. And they, they were all custom chemicals. It's like coming up with a new drug for cancer. And Polaroid either made them themselves in chemical factories that we owned or we worked with outside companies to do that. And as the film, as Polaroid was, was uh, moving away from the production of film, it, it, it was shutting down the chemical manufacturing, you know, first. And so um, there's a lot, a, a, so, so even if you knew what the recipes were, uh, you'd have to have more than just the recipes of the film. You'd have to have the procedures and the chemical reaction processes that, that you would need to make these custom chemicals. So what... What the Impossible team did, and this was, this was an amazing job that they did, and it was well before me coming here, was they were able to find commercially available materials. 
some of which are somewhat exotic, but they were still available. They didn't have to be, uh, uh, they didn't need to invent them. And they were able to put together a system of, of you know, dyes and light-sensitive silver halide emulsions and find a way to do multi-layer coating and originally on a contract basis and then originally, and then, and then eventually buying that uh, and, and making that part of the factory. And they were able to, within a, a, within a, a couple of years of buying this factory, they were able to uh, have a, a system that they could make and that would you know, self-develop and would work in Polaroid cameras. And, and so they were, they were off and running at that, at that point. Um, and it really is, I, I have to take my hat off to them. They, they did an amazing job being able to do that, uh, finding materials that were available and then, and then coming up with a new recipe of you know, their own to you know, use them. And, um, and, and that was kind of the starting point when I joined the company, which was in late 2013. So it was a little bit more than a year ago. And um, I, I got connected with it back. Well, I, I had been connected from the start because I had some colleagues that worked here during my years at Polaroid. And I had made trips to Enskede. And, and, and I knew that they had you know, founded a spin-out company to try to do what they're doing and that they were called impossible. And, and I talked now and then with one of the leaders of that group just on how they were doing and what was going well and what wasn't going well. So I, was, I, I knew about the company and knew that they had succeeded in, in making a film that they started to sell. Um, uh, and then I got asked to come over in August of 2013 to meet with a team that was representing R&D at the time and also with Creed, our CEO at that time, and, um, and get an update in quite a bit of detail about the chemistry they were using and how well it was working and what ways it wasn't working well enough and to try to give some consulting help on how they might make it better. Um, there was a really strong commitment that was clear to me at that time to making an investment in making the film much more instant and much better quality if, if there was a strategy that, uh, you know, that could be defined to go do that. And we came up with one and we talked a little bit about it over the following months and then they asked me if I would join the company and leave a company that I was working with, that I had founded actually with some others, um, and, um, and help lead the effort, join this team and help to lead the effort to make the film, to kind of take it up, up to the next level. Um, it, was, it was impossible to resist that, <laughs> that offer. Although it was also hard to leave the company I was with because that, that was a company called Zinc Imaging, Z-I-N-K, which stands for Zero Inc. And in 2005, I and a few other executives at Polaroid spun that company out with some investment funding and formed that as a startup company and managed that and developed the technology and commercialized products based on it over the next eight new years. So from 2005 to 2013, and then it was in 2013 that I made the decision to leave them, let them go off on their own and, and uh, you know, join these, these guys. Because this is... This is this is a really unique thing, and and I was, I was skeptical at first, but became convinced that this you know, demand or this renewed resurgent interest in analog instant photography was was not some tiny little niche. Um, it's never going to be what it was in its heyday before digital, but there's an interest in this that's more than just a, a couple of casual users, and we've seen a really steady growth 
in the people using products like this. And many of them are in the late teenage to 25 or 30 year old, you know, age group. So these are, these are, these are kids and young and young men and women who have really been born and raised totally in the digital age after, after analog instant photography and after analog you know, regular conventional photography. This is this is something that they know existed maybe, but they never really got exposed to it. And it's, it seems to, uh, it seems to be something that, that the, the magic of it is still something that people are really enjoying. And it really, it really is that, that, that my first camera was, uh, a Kodak Instacolor 50, yeah. the the rival that, that yeah. Kodak put out. Probably got, back in the 80s. And they got sued by Polaroid and yeah. then it yeah. was discontinued. Do you remember the first time you held an instant photograph? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I had never used an instant camera until I joined Polaroid. And it was almost... Never a, had your photo taken by one? Uh, I, let's see. As a kid? Yeah, as a, with a Peel-A-Pot product, yeah, with a Peel-A-Pot in black and white that my father had. Uh, he had a, a camera with a bellows and, and some peel-apart film, yeah. Uh, but we didn't use it all that all that much. But every every now and then he would, he would, uh, he would use it. Um, and I had no idea, as most people don't, what was involved chemically or or with uh, uh, with the science of it at all. I just it, it didn't look very complicated to me, and that was kind of by design. Land wanted it to be unbelievably simple to use and have all of the complexity be kind of hidden behind the curtain and not have the user even know about it. Um, but when I got exposed to, I, I, I happened to be going to school walking distance from the Polaroid labs and from Land's lab. And um, one of my roommate was going out with a girl who was working at Polaroid in the chemical research labs. And we were, we were, we were, we were meeting one night and she said, yeah, we got some openings. If, and I walked over for an interview and, and um, I was just getting my PhD at MIT at the time, and I, I got done with that, and then you know just just stayed in the same apartment and walked to work. Started working uh, working in Lands Lands Lab in you know Cambridge, Mass. And um, and and once I found out how this chemistry worked, and how intricate it was, and how com complex it was, um, it's I I still I mean I've been working with it with with this type of technology for, for more than 30 years and it it really doesn't get old it's um uh, it's it's really a fascinating thing to really to really work with as a as a chemist and everything that you do you get this instant instant feedback this instant visual feedback um you make a change to try to improve the colors or make the temperature latitude better or make the the film storage stability better or Make it develop faster, or make it more light stable, or and and you immediately know whether the molecular changes that you made, the chemical changes that you made at that kind of level, whether they did what you what you want. I I mentioned earlier that it's it's in in my estimation the world's most chemically complicated, entirely man-made product. I I don't know of another one. So I I think that that's true. Maybe someone will will be able to tell me that there's something else. Living systems, biological systems, are something that is more complicated, but entirely man-made, chemically-based systems. I don't know of anything that that else else that is like it. And even though we have designed everything in it, it's complicated enough once you get all those chemicals together and all those chemical reactions working in an interactive way that it 
almost takes on a life of its own. It does things that we don't know the mechanisms for. So when we're trying to improve it, some of what we do in research is to just try to, you know, is to just try to study the system that we have created and figure out how it does what it, what it, what it does. Some of what it does, we can explain completely in very detailed chemical terms. Other things, not so. And, and we have to, if we're trying to improve something that requires knowledge about that, we have to, some of the research that we do have to be to try to learn more about that. Why is it doing what it is doing? How does it do that? Um, and it's, that's, that, that's kind of interesting. And it's a little bit strange because you'd think we would know everything about it. If somebody designs a complicated circuit, you know, some kind of electrical circuit, but very, very complicated one. Even if it's very complicated, the designer of it knows everything about why it does what it does and how it does what it does. That's not true when you get that kind of a complexity in an interactive chemical system. There are chemical reactions taking place, side reactions taking place that were never intended that are part of the process. And we, we just have to live with that. We have to manage, you know, manage around that. There's a light in your eyes when you talk about working here. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's not just here. It's been uh, it's been quite a few decades yeah. of, of being exposed to this stuff. What is it? Um, what is it about the the product? What is it about this? I mean, it's essentially it's a widget. You're making just you're just making things, yeah, yeah. you know. But but it's got something else about it. Yeah, well, I think it is. It's a little bit like when you when you have the the knowledge and experience that I have just from being around this for a while, and from having the chemistry background. Of, of what this is and how it's doing what it's doing to the extent that we, we are able to know that. Uh, it's a very intellectually stimulating system to work with and work on. And there's, it's a blend of, of art and science, if you really think about it. I mean, really, photography uh, and one of the big uses of it is, has really been art. Um, and it has been from the beginning. So there's a, there's a fun aspect to it. I mean, just all of the magic and the fun that the end user gets by using it because they can marvel a little bit at this and it's not like this thing is, is, is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it is, it's obviously there is still a magic there that we were just talking about. You can imagine how much more fun it is to look at that happening and, and know what the molecular chemistry going on that's making it happen is. And then saying, now I want to make it different. So what, which of those you know, 50 reactions, which of those 100 chemicals do I change? And what about their molecular structure should be changed from what to what to make it do something else, make it do what we, what we, what we want? It's a very challenging but fun thing. It's, it's, it, it really is almost like an artist uh, creating a beautiful painting or a sculpture or something. We're, we're just, just happen to be working with these chemical molecules. And was it that excitement that, I mean, I can only imagine that you starting, you're spitting out a Polaroid, starting zinc, uh, working with other people and then creating your own company and building it up. Yeah. It must've been quite an allure to, to, to go, okay, see you fellas. It was, it was, and it wasn't easy. And if, if you talk, talk with Creed and others that were, were talking about my leaving sync and, and you know coming coming here. Um, 
it, it didn't happen in a week or two. It took from August to November, I think, with lots of discussions. And a lot of that was because of, of the allegiance that I felt to this other company and the people, many of those people I had worked with for several decades at Polaroid before Zinc. So, um, and that, that was, that is an amazingly exciting tech, technology as well. But there was something about having an opportunity here to work again with this world's most chemically complex system and, and help, help it almost from the beginning. When I joined Polaroid, I worked for decades on, uh, for, on the you know, chemistry and on advancing the chemistry. But a lot of the groundbreaking work, uh, a lot of the foundation laying work had been done in you know, the decades prior to me. I joined in the 1970s. So in the 1950s and 60s is really when some amazing work happened and, and some incredible challenges were over, you know, were over, over come. Um, and I could see that they, they here at, at the Impossible Project were kind of at that early stage. And it was almost a chance to come in and, and work on, on something that uh, where you would be helping to lay the foundation again. And right. it was going to be new, new chemistry. It wasn't just, there are a whole lot of reasons why it wasn't really feasible just to say, well, let's just redo what Polaroid did. It had to be doing it in a way that had never been done before. This is a, you know, Fuji, de I mean, Polaroid developed its, its system. Kodak developed one that they, that they had for a number of years. Fuji developed their own that they have still, you know, today. Uh, you know, Agfa developed one that they didn't commercialize, and it's actually that one that we use some elements of here. And ours is gonna be different. Ours is different. It is yet a new way to do instant photography in many respects. So the opportunity to come in and work like that, uh, and, and also obviously the people, you gotta, you gotta like the people and you gotta feel that they're gonna be fun and inspiring to be around. And I, I, I could kind of feel that. There was an energy here, there is today, that was palpable and I, uh, that, that was exciting. So when you first started to work at, at Polaroid in the 70s, you're, you're a young man, yeah. was it? Yeah. Were there whispers in the hallways? Here he comes! And was what was it like? Was Edwin Land there? Yeah, yeah. I, I I didn't know him like really really well because he his last five years were my first five years. So there was five you know, years of overlapping. Um, I was working in a lab that he had. So there, there was a building that Land was one of the first Polaroid buildings that had been uh, previously the Kaplan Furniture Company. It was an old brick building that said Kaplan Furniture painted onto the bricks. Nowhere on the building did it say Polaroid. And around it were other newer Polaroid laboratories. But in Kaplan Furniture Building was where Land's office was. Um, some people know, but in case you don't, his, his office was also the office that was used by Alexander Graham Bell when he invented the telephone. So... They were both in the same in the same office, and Land had his own private lab within that building, and that's the lab that I was initially hired into, and I worked there until after Land left. So uh, he was amazing. Uh, he was um, was a fantastic scientist who had this enormous patience with this with the science in this type of work. And it's, too, it's true also in the pharmaceutical industry. If you're trying to develop a drug to cure Parkinson's, 
or to cure cancer. Most people know those things take years and decades. There's a lot of trial and error, a lot of going down the wrong path, but only by going down the wrong path can you learn it is the wrong path and learn enough to know what might the right might you know, be the right path. This is very, very similar to that. And Land had this amazing patience. He, he believed in doing a lot of experiments every, every single day and learning as much as he could from them and eventually figuring out the direction you needed to go and eventually getting to either the finish line that you had originally set out for or maybe another one that looked that all of a sudden you ended up coming up with and it looked like you could, you could reach. Um, but, um, and, and everybody knows, and it's kind of legendary that he was, he had a, he was very motivational. Um, he, he loved being in the public. Uh, he loved to show off the products and had a really effective way of doing that and, and kind of marketing the company at the same, at the same time. He had several other very senior people working with him. One of them, Howie, Howie Rogers, is really the guy who deserves as much credit as you know, anyone in coming up with the chemistry that became instant color chemistry. Um, and Howie was kind of the opposite of land. Howie was quiet, um, didn't need to, or wasn't that comfortable being in the limelight. Uh, so if there was a big press meeting or a big media event or a big shareholders meeting where new products were going to be unveiled, you know, land was land was somebody that that was really really good at doing that. Uh, Howie Howie didn't so much, but the two of them were a, a great pair, a great you know partnership. Really, it does sound a lot like the relationship that a lot of people are familiar with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Yeah, and Jobs, I, 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 people that have read about it, I know know that he knew all about Land, and Land was somebody who really inspired him, and he modeled himself and his company after a little bit. Um, but they, they, were the, they were the Apple computer of their yeah. day. It was an absolutely space-age technology, yeah, it was, it was. and they were selling uh, not only the device, they were selling the widgets that worked in the device. Yeah. So yeah. you had the customer yeah. for years after you sold them one thing, they couldn't, you had them for, for life. Yeah, yeah. Well, until 2009. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and and some people think you know, well, when a company, when when, I mean, a lot of a lot of when, you know, digital imaging really became of age, and you know, analog photography, not only instant but all of analog photography, went way way down in sales and volumes, and still exists today, but obviously on a much much smaller scale. Um, you know, it 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 was uh, a lot of people would see that as sad. That's just the way business is. I mean, every if they're. Things, things come along and they make the old stuff obsolete. Um, but I often tell you know, people, if, you, if, if I think of Polaroid starting up in the 1930s and, and, and in the early 40s and having a 60-year run of a near monopoly with sales that were exceeding $2 billion a year for a number of years, if you went to a startup company today and said, I can give you, I, I can't give you an infinite lifetime, but I can give you 60 years of a near monopoly with more than a billion. I, there aren't too many companies that would shy away from that. So, and the other thing that people I think realize, but they don't, but they sometimes lose a little focus of is when a company uh, struggles at the end financially and maybe goes into a bank, a bankrupt state and they may or may not be able to come out of that in some, in some new you know, form. There are a lot of a lot of startup companies that come from that, and that could not come from anything but that. In the case of Zinc Imaging, 
we had tens of millions of dollars of R&D equipment and multi-layer coders and things, very expensive equipment, that if you wanted to find an investor to start that company and they had to somehow fund that, it, it would have been impossible. But all of that equipment had been written off during a, bank, a bankruptcy and we got it for a fraction of that, that we could find an investor to pay Polaroid for. Without that, this new company with you know a fair, a fair number of employees that's going on now for another decade wouldn't have existed. And there's lots of those, there's lots of those. The, uh, you know, camera, the camera that we're developing now for the instant uh, uh, film that will be the first impossible uh, camera will be coming out later this, this year is being designed uh, by uh, a, contract, uh, a, a, a contract engineering firm that is in Scotland that is a spin out of Polaroid. Yeah, um, so there's, there's a lot of these little, little companies that kind of come from, they're, they're born from the, the, you know, the uh, you know, tail end of, of much, much larger companies. Just to talk about Land for a little bit more, there's a, there's a legend that he would sometimes just work for, for days in, oh, yeah. in the same. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Clothes, were you ever caught up in one of those sessions? Yeah, there were lots of, and it wasn't just land. It was a culture. But uh, even after land was long gone and even after we formed Zinc, um, I've had days and, and other other of the scientists working with me would work for literally two or three days at a time and nights without leaving the building, without going out for a meal, without changing clothes. Um, I, I've had a number of times where I've called up somebody that lives near my house, asked them to stop by and get some clothes from my wife to bring to work for me to change into because I hadn't been home for three days. Um, Land had times, I was not involved with this personally, but he had a time on a major holiday in the United States when everybody is off. It's a national holiday and everybody's off and their families are all together having a meal together. And Land had an idea that morning, called up several of, of, of the scientists and asked them to come into work immediately to work on the idea. Was it on Thanksgiving or something? Yeah, yeah it, was, oh. it was. So he didn't want to wait till the next day. Come in now. They're in the middle of a meal with all their relatives. Leave, come into work. I got this idea. We got to work on it. This, it's going to be unbelievable. But when you're around people like that, I mean, there are some people that may be upset by that. But most, of, he was, he had so much motivational character, and and you know, that that it was exciting. And and it's not like he did that every single day. When he did that, that was that that was exceptional. It was something really, really special that he really thought he was on the verge of a breakthrough. Um, he and a few others 
um, they were in this Kaplan furniture business that I said, and across the street from that was a, a newer building that had chemical research labs in it. And Land would often go over there because there would be research there that he wanted to see results of. And he would have his mind so wrapped up in what he was thinking about that he'd leave the Kaplan Furniture Building to walk across the street and pay no attention to the traffic. And it was not a very busy street, but it was a street that cars could, could travel on. And there were a few times when he would just go walking out the door and just walk right into the street, not even look to see if there was a car coming. And there were a couple of others like him. So we had to put up a metal barrier that would prevent him. He would be unable to walk right into the street <laughs> because we thought he was going to probably, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, lose it there. So, but yeah, he would get really wrapped up, and and some others too, really, really wrapped up in something that they were thinking about and and work, you know, work on it for. He also said something that really kind of fascinated me. He, you tell me he did an experiment every day. Oh, many of them. Yeah, no, I mean. Not just one, and and you know, and we and we do as well. I mean, the, the the key to this type of work is to do as many experiments as you as you as you can. I, I keep using this analogy with the pharmaceutical field. If you come up with a new chemotherapeutic agent for treating cancer that works really well, and you you went back to the company that came up with that and said, "When did you first start this project?" It was probably five, ten, or more years ago. And if you said, how many different chemical formulations did you come up with? Did you make? Did you test? Did you get results from? Did you then make? Did you learn from those results? And then you made something else. There's this cycle that you that you do. And how many of those cycles did you, you know, did you go through? And it, it's probably thousands. And that's the way it is here. And so the question really comes down to how quickly can you do those cycles? If you can do one every two days or three per day, that's going to get you much, much. Uh, you you will be able to make these advances quickly. So he was somebody. When I when I say an experiment, it, it would be, uh, you know, changing the formulations in the negative or the sheet or the positive, and 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 seeing what the results were with an intended result, and did you get that intended result or not? And if not, what did it what did it do? And why do you think it did it? And what should the next experiment be? So that's and that's not just you know, unique to this type of work or to the pharmaceutical industry. It's really, you know, science in general. I think that's kind of the way it's done. Um, were you, were you uh, so you were at Polaroid until until it ended? Yeah, yeah I was at Polaroid until. Uh, well, it it I mean Polaroid still exists today as as a brand licensing company mostly. So there there is there is still a Polaroid Corporation. It's a whole different uh, beast than it was. But I joined in 1977 and I left in 2005. Uh -huh. And in 2004, Polaroid had been sold to a new owner. Um, and that new owner wanted to become more of a brand licensing company. So not really have an R&D and a production operation. Um, and I, 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 at the time, was the vice president of R&D at Polaroid. And this guy who owned the company now uh, gave me six months of continued funding before that would be shut off to try to find another you know, home. And we ultimately did that. There was quite a, that was quite an adventurous six months looking for other options. But we ultimately spun out you know, mm -hmm. the zinc imaging from that yeah. with, an, you know, with an investor. 
So what was the, what was the mood like at Polaroid, the company, when you were there, um, when you first started noticing, wow, everyone's got a digital camera? Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, um, let's see. I think everybody was a little worried um, because we saw it as a threat. Um, and it's not only digital camera. We were, we were, there were two things that were really kind of threatening about that. One was uh, there were new, new ways to print that came about as a result of digital imaging. So using an inkjet printer or using a thermal printer to print a photograph, not only photographs, but, but in particular a photograph, um, was now something that you could, you could do. So if you, if you think about analog photography, especially instant, instant photography, it's the same device, the film, that is the light capturing thing and is the final print. When you go to digital imaging, you have separated those two steps. You capture it in one completely separate step, and now you can print in many different ways and whenever and wherever you, you want. So there were pretty, uh, pretty high-energy high debates that went on for a number of years, not only within Polaroid, but in the entire field of photography about what the impact was going to be of you know, digital imaging. Um, a lot of the focus was on what, how, what types of digital printing were also coming about to print digital images, and how good was that printing, and how good would it become? Would it ever be good enough to be a photographic quality? If you think of a 35-millimeter print back in, in the day, non-instant, um, high-quality photographs, 8x10s or any, any format. It was very, very high you know, quality. Um, had been evolved over 100 years and was really at a very advanced state. And at the beginning, inkjet and things like that were nowhere near that kind of quality, either for color quality, for resolution, for light stability, for many things. But they were working on that. And so a lot of the debate was, will it ever become good enough to displace regular analog photography. And then I, I think there was also a debate going on. It was a little, little lower level about what the need for printing would actually be. Once people have soft copies of digital images, how would they use those? How much printing would there be? Um, so those were the two aspects of the debate. There's a lot of that. And I think for quite a few years at the beginning, um, People thought maybe we were biased. Um, people within the analog field felt it wouldn't get good enough. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be good enough, that it would not, it, it would take some of the business away, but wouldn't, um, uh, wouldn't be as uh, you know, disruptive as it actually proved to be. There were some that, that were making the prediction that it would be, but I, th I think there was a pretty large, large portion of, of the, of the, of the you know, folks in the industry that thought that that was doubtful or that the number of years or, or how far into the future that was, 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 was going to be further into the future than it actually turned out. So, and when you think about it today, I mean, it's when not only instant photography, but I mean, instant photography was the first to get hit hard. I think it was the most vulnerable. Um, but then it wasn't too too long after that that the, that the uh, you know the, you know that the conventional uh, stuff with mini labs and people using regular analog film and 35 millimeter cameras that 
that you know started to drop incredibly you know as you know as well what was the mood in the in the in the morale of the company like it was, when you it was to tough see that? it was tough and and the 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 companies that were selling film instant film and and non-instant film so kodak fuji agfa um you know polaroid uh, all all of them were pretty high they they the the uh, margins on the film, the sales margin, the profit margin on the film was pretty was pretty high. And the company's entire structure, the business structure, was kind of built around that. So you kind of had two choices. If if your sales and your profits were going down, you had to bring your costs down. You had to do layoffs. You had to somehow get those costs out of the you know company. Um, unless you could come up with some alternate products, unless you could make a, a shift and, and be and be and become a digital company, but even even those companies that were reasonably successful at doing that, uh, the new digital products were not the same profit margin level as the analog ones were. So you still had to bring down your costs a lot, and that that meant layoffs, and that that's there's nothing. There's nothing tougher for a company than to be going through that kind of downsizing and whenever, when when your focus turns from just you know advancing your your you know, technology from advancing your products from coming out with a stream of 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 really exciting products year after year satisfying your customers, when those are what you're focusing on, it's a great it's a great place to be. When your focus is on how do we how do we how do we get some more cost out? Um, then you know obviously it's much less motivating, and it is you know the opposite. Uh, and when you're seeing people losing their jobs and having layoffs, and uh, it's a, it's a really scary you know time. Certainly, when you it know, sounds like such a fun place to work. Nobody's secure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that 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 was that was tough. It was tough for people who were being laid off. And as 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 a manager, I was I was somebody who was you know, laying off people. I was running the R and D group. And we were certainly wanting to bring the cost down in R and D. There wasn't as much need for that. And uh, there's there's nothing more difficult that I've ever done than you know laying off people that I knew that I loved. I knew their families. They were good people. They were valuable to us. We just didn't didn't we just couldn't afford it. That's that's how it is for most companies that are in that in that you know phase of you know of their existence. Um, the opposite's true. The opposite feeling is true when a company is, you know, uh, you know, rapidly growing, and when, when your problem is, is how do we keep up with the demand, and and how do we hire enough good people fast enough? And that's, you know, that's, that's the opposite side of the coin. Which is sounds like it's happening here. It, it is to a large extent. Um, I mean, last year, we did all we could do to manufacture film to meet the demand. Um, you sold a million units last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. That's 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 you know that's such a such a landmark. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, no, that, and we all knew that it would be for the you know company, and there was a lot of drive towards that. Uh, but the demand was there, and that's yeah. that's what was doing it. So, what's interesting? You mentioned it earlier that it's where art meets science and there's this you know you saw it happen with the uh with the time zero film for sure where you could manipulate the the emulsion yeah uh, after yeah. you shot it and that 
and I just always found it interesting is that the art, ever since someone invented the camera obscura and started dr- tracing what they saw outside on a wall, um, that the art and the science kind of kind of move move together. You, as, soon as, as soon as you create something, someone's found out a way to make to make art with it. And and some of the products you make here in Impossible certainly they lend they lean a bit more to that direction, don't they? Oh, absolutely. It, it's it's really interesting. The um, this link between photography and art and instant photography and art. Certainly, if you look at Polaroid's history and 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 ours is, is as well, that link was there from the beginning. Land, and I don't know exactly why he thought this, but well before my time there, he recognized that this was a connection that was worth making. And when instant photography first started to be developed, it was instant, uh, you know, black and white initially. Uh, he started to form relationships with Ansel Adams, which, which, which are very, very well known, and many other photographers. And then when color came along, you know, the, you know, the uh, you know, same. So many artists in the world who also brought in the photography into their art, land formed a relationship with, and had them involved with testing new films and giving feedback on it because they they did things with the film that were different than what most people did. And he thought the we would learn the most by having people coming up with new creative things to do with the film. In, the, in, in, in a building in Cambridge, in fact, it is the one that was across the street from Land's original building, it was a five-story chemical research laboratory. Nothing but chemists in there, including me for a number of years. Did you have a lab coat? Oh, yeah, yeah. You named monogrammed on it? No, I didn't have my, oh. my name on it. <laughs> but um, they, they were hundreds of chemists in there who were designing and synthesizing new you know, chemicals for us to use within the film or test within the film. On the first floor of that building was an art gallery that Land established called the Kennedy Gallery, where artists using instant photography were invited in to do exhibits and the public was open to them and there'd be evenings with wine and cheese and stuff. It was in this chemical research laboratory. So we were always seeing what the latest artists in the world were doing with our film. Um, and when instant photography uh, started to go down in, in you know, sales, uh, the reason was because obviously we've just been talking about it. The digital was coming along, and it was taking the it was it was a better way to do many many you know things. And um, a, a lot of the applications for Polaroid instant film, things like uh, you know. Uh, um, use within the insurance industry or the law enforcement agencies. There were lots of other non-consumer applications. They began to go to digital so that we would lose the, you know, uh, uh, we would, you know, lose, you know, lose the uh, 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 volumes there. Um, one of the last ones to go away, and I would say that it never went away, was, you know, artists. These were artists who used uh, instant film as one of their media and they never stopped using it. You might say, well, how did they continue using it if the film, if, if Polaroid stopped the production? Some of these artists, and there are a number of them within, within Holland where we are now, that when they knew Polaroid was going to stop production, bought incredible quantities of it. There's one artist that I've met uh, who, is, who, was, who was in the Amsterdam area who went out and bought one or two refrigerators and then bought all the film he could get from the United States, from Europe, from Australia, and put it into storage and still has some today. This is more than a decade later and uses it. Um, 
So when there were almost no more applications for instant film, art was, was still one that never ended. And that was one of the, so that was one that, that, that was one of the last ones with Polaroid's legacy. And it was one of the first ones with us. They, as soon as they realized now there's some new source of instant film, they were really, really excited about it. And they've been using ours, ours uh, now. One of the things that I've kind of dabbled with that's a lot of fun, and I, I, I don't know how readily you could do this with the old Polaroid film. I wasn't that aware of it, but it's something people are doing a lot with the, uh, with the film that we make here with the, uh, with the impossible film. And it's called uh, a lift process where you know, there's an emulsion lift process. You, you take a picture, it can be black and white, can be color integral. You let the, let the picture develop, you peel it apart, and then you take the positive image, which is on the top side of the film, and use hot water to separate the gelatin layers, which are a really flimsy, thin, fragile thing that has the image in it. You can separate that and have that floating in the water, and then you can transfer that to a number of other types of sub substrates and get some really, really cool effects. And there are a number of artists that are doing all kinds of variations on that and, and coming up with some really, really creative results. And there's other things that you can do with it too that are manipulating and and adding other types of art to you know this one not not staying totally within the photographic domain, but bringing painting and drawing in and combining it in some way. I mean, it's kind of endless the beyond the chemical reactions that take on a life of their own. So does the film. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and it's really neat to see. And uh, um, and they're they're a passionate group. The artists, yeah. um, they, and there are a number of them here. I've, I've gotten to know a number of them. Um, that, that, um, that do, they, do they influence the manufacture like they did in the old days? Um, they do to some extent. What we do, we, we have a group before I joined the company, some of the first uh, users of the Impossible film. And it wasn't particularly good film then, but it was the first available film. Uh, I had some. Were what... <laughs> we call today pioneer users and they're actually registered with us and we have a connection with them and when we have a new film that we're developing or we're experimenting with uh, from time to time we'll make a few thousand packs of it and we'll let it be known over the internet or over social media that we have this film and if some of our pioneer users would like to buy some um, and use it they're welcome to. It's not available yet on the market. It may never be available, but they can try it. And, and they give us feedback mostly through social media. So we'll see Twitter just light up with lots of dialogue from around the world with these users um, talking about the film even before they even have it, that it's available, they're going to get some, um, and then one will get it. They'll be the, they'll, they'll be the first ones to get it. They'll, they'll use it. They'll comment on it. Some of them do some amazingly thorough things with them in terms of testing it and seeing how it does in temperatures and all kinds of different conditions. And then they give us a report kind of through, through the social media and sometimes other you know, means as well. Mm. But, but, and so we hear whether they liked it, they didn't like it, what they liked, what they didn't like about it. And we do actually uh, you know, take that seriously. How did, you, how did you first get involved in, in chemistry? Were you the kid blowing things up in the backyard? Um, no, I don't know how I did. I was more interested in physics originally. I went to college as a physics major. 
and get exposed. Well, hang on a second. What, at what stage of your teenage years were you like, physics, yeah, yeah, that'll be great. Uh, high school. Yeah? High school, yeah. Um, I thought it'd be neat. And I think what, what, what switched me over to chemistry was um, when I realized that everything around us in this room, in this city, on this planet, in the whole universe, everything is made up of, of basically chemicals. And everybody's heard of the periodic table with a hundred some odd, you know, elements in it. Those are the different kinds of atoms and different combinations of those make different molecules. And that's what it's different combinations of those that give everything, all of its properties, including you and I being, being living organisms. And the fact that you could understand how all these things had these properties by understanding the chemistry is what got me fascinated. Um, I wanted to know that. How does um, when when you you know when you cut yourself and you're bleeding and all of a sudden, without you doing anything, the blood coagulates and stops, and healing starts. How does that happen? It's chemistry. We call it biochemistry because it's chemistry within a biological system. But it's you know chemistry and it's 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 chemical reactions. It's molecules that have a certain structure. And they're triggered. I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's, you're talking about magic of instant photography. It's nothing like the magic of, say, a, a living system. But so it was kind of getting exposed to that. And, and originally, where I wanted to go with that chemistry was working for, a pharmace, working for a pharmaceutical company and doing research on new uh, you know, drugs for treating diseases. That's what I wanted to do. And my PhD was kind of in that area and I was gearing up to, you know, work, uh, you know, work in that area. And, um, and then I heard about Polaroid and went for an interview and, and got hooked on the chemistry of instant photography. What was, uh, what was MIT like when you were going to college? It was a fantastic place. Um, and, uh, still is, but, uh, um, it's one of the, top schools in the world for doing science. And so it tends to attract top scientists, Nobel Prize winners. And you're in that environment. So I was in that environment. Is there any coincidence that the Polaroid lab was nearby? No, it, w it really isn't. Although, I mean, Land originally went to Harvard and wanted to develop for, some, for a research project there and for you know, part of his degree, he wanted to develop a synthetic polarizing lens or you know, filter and Harvard, the kind that people have on their sunglasses. Right. Yeah. Right. And Harvard, and Harvard didn't you know, support that and land quit and you know, dropped out and he developed it, um, you know, without them. And he named that substance once he came up with it, Polaroid. That's, that's where the name Polaroid comes, comes from. That was the first Polaroid. He wasn't thinking about anything to do with photography. But um, so he was kind of you know, raised and going to school in that area. But then it, it was an ideal place to have Polaroid because you've got Harvard and MIT and a number of other schools right, at, you know, right in the Boston area. So it wasn't the only place in the country with that kind of constant concentration of schools, but it was one of the ones that was that, that where you could really get access to some really bright, you know, people. Uh, and not only that, but there were relationships that we had with some of those research groups, you know, afterwards. Uh, when I worked at Polaroid, there was a Nobel Prize winning chemist uh, who came and 
met with us on a regular basis and we would describe the work we were doing, the projects we were working on, the chemistry we were doing, why we were doing it, what our objectives were, the struggles we were having, and we'd get advice from, from this Nobel Prize winning chemist. It's not a bad thing uh, to have at work. Yeah, yeah. and so we, we got, we got you know, used to that. Yeah, all right, because it's just, that's just how it is in, yeah. in that yeah. part of and, the world. And Land had enough you know, uh, you know, stature that he had these relationships with famous artists and famous scientists, and, and um, he was an advisor to the President of the United States for a number of years. Uh, you know, a science advisor. Um, so lots of yeah. lots of history there. How much can you talk about the new camera that's being developed? Because um, uh, it's exciting. This is yeah. the first polar it's the integral instant camera that's been developed in maybe twenty years or something. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's being uh, yeah. It's 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 a really exciting project, and uh, um, it's um, and and we're, it'll it'll be out uh, you know later in the year. It's a fully 100% analog camera, analog instant instant camera, but there are aspects of the electronics uh, and the uh, tech, technology today which have advanced a lot in 20 years. So it's going to have uh, some some real state of the art stuff in it. This is so the camera itself is going to it's going to have a really sophisticated exposure system in it and a great focusing system and a be able to focus to a fairly close-up range, um, which should be as good a quality as you can get out of an instant print from the camera side of things. You had, you're like you're holding the ears of the rabbit out of the hat. Yeah. <laughs> you're not letting yeah. it see the whole rabbit, but that, that's that's some pretty big clues you you're dropping there. Yeah, um, that's that's amazing. I just just one just one step back a bit as a, someone who has this vast knowledge of chemistry and chemical bonds and atomic bonds and stuff like that. Do you? Do you feel more comfortable in the world that you can see how everything works together? Is, is the world still a mystery to you? Or you look at things and go, oh, I know why that is bonding with that. No, obviously the world is still a mystery. You can know, there are people that know a hell of a lot more about it than I do, and it's still a mystery for them too. Uh, in, in some senses, it, it's not always comforting um, when you see some of, the, some of the problems that we have in the world with the environment with the population growth and the limitations on food supply and, and, and the climatic changes that are going on. You know, when you, when you look at some of that um, and, and you, you think, okay, how, how optimistic should I be that we can do you know, something about that? I, I tend to be an incredible optimist. So I think there is a lot that we can do about that. If we, if we can get a little more unified as a, as a, as a, as a people on the entire planet. And I think sometimes we don't think that we're making much progress there. The, you know, the political systems are still keeping us kind of apart more than they are together. But I think if you could step back from it and look at it today versus, you know, 50 years ago versus, uh, versus 500 years ago versus 1,000 years ago, I think you'd see, you know, incredible amounts of improvement. The question is, is it really going to be fast enough? But yeah, to, to answer your question, it is it is still a mystery. But there's a lot that 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 does make sense to me when I when I you know, you know, look at it. The, the physical properties of things and the chemical properties of, of of things are something that I tend to think about without really thinking about them because it's almost like uh, it is it is a language. You know, it, it when you're drawing molecular structures and talking with some other chemists about 
the, the chemistry at that kind of level, showing chemical reactions with this molecule reacting with that molecule and these bonds changing and this bond breaking. And it's, it's just a form of communication. And chemistry is really, in many respects, nothing more than a language. It's, it is the means that you do that communication. Um, do you see when you put those bonds together, do you, do you see beauty in it? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's an elegance to it, not only in the molecular structures. Um, when, you, when you look at a molecular structure and um, uh, you, you can point to different segments of it that are responsible for some different properties and different, you know, uh, different ways that it can react. Um, and it, that I keep using this analogy with the drugs and stuff that, that those companies are coming up with. Um, when you look at a new molecule that has been invented to treat Parkinson's disease or something, um, the people who have developed that will point out, will show you usually what, what part of that molecular structure is the, is the part that's most active for treating the disease that's, that is that is helping there. And that's the same way with our system. And then there might be some other part that they had to optimize to minimize some unwanted side effects. And it's very, very much like that with us. We'll, we'll come up with a new chemical, and we are right uh, now. We are investing this year twice as much money in R&D, a lot of it in new custom chemical development to advance this particular product. And the new molecules that we're developing um, there are some of the molecular structures, some of the portions of those are to give, to make certain things happen in the film, make our colors better, make the film more instant. Those are the two main things that we're trying to do. Um, and then there are aspects of it when there are times where, that we'll come up with a chemical, we'll test it, we'll see it's doing that, but there's something that's not, it's doing something else that we don't want. It might make the system a little less stable or temperature latitude might be a little worse. So we, there's something good about the new molecule, but there's something that's not really optimum. So we have to figure out, okay, is there some modification of that molecular structure that we can make that will keep the good, you know, the good function and minimize the stuff that we don't want? And that's, that's, and, and there's an elegance to that, you know, process. I can barely bake a cake. What's it like to make a molecule that has never yet existed? Um, it's fun. <laughs> and and I think the challenge is you stand back from it and go <laughs> no no that's just when it, when somebody makes a living doing brain surgery on you know and they leave at the end of the day to go home and have dinner with their family after they've saved some six month old girl's life there are people that do that too and after a while I'm, I'm sure it doesn't get boring for them but they it it is somewhat of a normal day for them, you know. That this this is for us. When I take a look at what people do in many other walks of life, I'm 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 totally in you know awe of it. I wonder how they can do it, and and they must never get bored with it. But but uh, the, the one of the neat things about chemical synthesis or doing the molecular design of something on paper and then going into a lab and and creating it, um, you you have to start. If, you, if there's a new molecule that's never existed before, a new chemical, you can draw its chemical structure, how do you make it exist? You have to start from other chemicals that you can buy or that you can get. You have to start from, from you know, something. And so a lot of the elegance 
of it. And a lot of the, the training that I had when I got my doctorate degree was how do you find a starting material that you can buy, you can get, and what chemical reactions what can you use to transform that in one or more steps to the new thing that, that you want that never existed before? And the art of, of, of uh, that, there are almost an infinite number of ways to do that. So how do you decide what to start from and what chemical reactions do you use to do the transformations? And, and you want to do that in as few steps as possible and in, with very high yields and, and things like that. So coming up with that is, is, is much of the elegance, not only in the target structure that you're after, but how are you going to come up with that? And then once you've done it, how do you prove that this chemical that you have in a jar has that molecular structure? You can't see the atoms. You can't see the molecules. These are on a, on a you know, scale. And the way that you do that, mostly, uh, there are many ways to do it, but is by, um, to make it simplified, by shining light on the molecule, um, light of many different wavelengths, and measuring how those different wavelengths of light interacted with the molecule. And by seeing the interactions, you can deduce the molecular structure and you can confirm it. Um, and so there's, there's a lot you know, to it that, that uh, makes it you know, really interesting. Sounds That's, like you have, a, you have a lot of fun when you come to work every day. Yeah, I do, I do. But the challenge, one of the challenges, you asked what must have been something about the allure of this place yeah. to leave a company that I was with and that was also doing and is doing some really exciting stuff. The other part, part of it that was a challenge um, was that um, I've got three kids and they're, they're grown, they're in their late 20s, early 30s. They're, two of them are married, they're all working, they kind of live on their own. My, my wife is still in Boston and I'm actually living in Dusseldorf. She teaches private music lessons to about 50 students. And when I got the opportunity to come here and join them, I, there, there was no way to join this enterprise and help them without moving here and being here every single day. And she wasn't about to leave her 50 students because she's had a relationship with them since they were little, a lot of them, and teaching them piano and flute. Some of them are about to go off to college and major in music or go to a music conservatory and they're practicing auditions. and. It's almost like a, a you know, doctor-patient kind of relationship. So we, we had to make a decision to you know, separate and have her continue living in Boston and me live in Dusseldorf and try to connect uh, using, you know, using, uh, uh, you know, using the internet as often as we can and having her travel over here as much as possible. And, and we've been able to make that you know, work. But that was another sacrifice that we both had to think about making. But... Uh, that just is a little bit more about the level of the allure of this place. I, I, I really wanted to do this. I'm, and I'm lucky to have her be willing to, to, to help me make that happen. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that you had time for this today yeah. and thanks for the show around downstairs. Hey, you're more than welcome. Amazing. So now I'm going to take your photo with a Polaroid camera. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Stephen Hurchin, Chief Technical Officer, the Chief Operating Officer of the Impossible Project. And uh, you can follow 
the work of that company and the remarkable story of that company at impossible underscore HQ on Twitter. Track down some of the film. Explore what it's like to shoot just one frame. Don't just hold the finger down and click burst mode and try and catch it. See what it's like to just shoot one frame. Restriction often forms great, great art. Um, As you can tell, I absolutely loved doing that and then uh, shooting... uh, a portrait in the old Polaroid factory with a Polaroid camera was pretty uh, pretty special for me. After I finished interviewing him, I went downstairs to the factory outlet store, and let's just say, let's just say I went a bit burko. I went a bit nuts um, down there. They even have a, they showed me the eight by ten integral film that they make, and that just that's a whole other kettle of fish. That's just scarily scarily alluring. But anyway, I'm grateful you can be a part of this show. I certainly hope that you enjoyed it, even though it was a fringe subject i'm hoping that you found some parallels in Stephen's story that you can apply to whatever it is you're going through what challenges you're facing um and if you did or you didn't please let me know and the best thing you can do if you do like this show is just to tell a friend grab their phone show them how to put a podcast on it show them how to listen to this show that'd be the greatest thing you could do for me absolutely so thank you so much have a fantastic week um very very grateful you're here and you can allow me to make this show that like i said before is in alignment with my passion and purpose and i certainly hope that you can hear that that i do this show because i love to do it and it seems to be resonating so i consider myself the luckiest man ever so until next week be kind sleep well and dream of beautiful things Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.